Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Tom Sumowski. Tom is a data scientist with Urban, the parent company of Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, and other fashion brands. Tom, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks for having me, Sam. So Tom was recently part of the team that worked on some work around product attribution. Uh, and just yesterday, their blog post about this project went live, uh, following them open sourcing some uh, some code. Uh, and we'll talk all about that. But before we do, Tom, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started working in data science and machine learning? Sure. My academic background, uh, I have a bachelor's and master's in electrical engineering. From there, I went uh, to Lockheed Martin, which is a defense contractor, uh, working in their corporate research lab for many years. And in there, the focus was primarily on wireless systems signal processing. So I started off primarily with embedded systems or embedded platform development for uh, the area of electronic warfare. So that involves anything to do with telecommunication. So these days, everything sort of talks to each other, phones, radios, you name it. Our goal was to sort of understand that uh, communication spectrum and infer activities that are going on. So it started off in kind of building signal geolocation applications, kind of working at a very low level. Later on, the shift moved towards a theme of cognitive in the 2012 timeframe for advanced technologies in that space. So what they sort of defense meant in terms of cognitive was adding intelligence to those applications that typically were very sort of rule-based and driven based on strict policies. So in other words, they were looking to apply machine learning sort of in the earlier uh, era of that space. So this is sort of pre-deep learning. So on the job, I more or less learned uh, how to apply machine learning for mainly pattern recognition of different signal patterns and making decisions on how you should, uh, should act based on that information. So for that, it was a lot of experimentation, um, a lot of learning with online courses like Coursera. And then since we were a research lab, it was building essentially prototypes for proof of concepts to the military. And the goal there was to get the users of these systems, so what they're called electronic warfare officers, the people that are uh, running these systems in operations, to essentially trust the prototypes enough that they can field and deploy them. So the focus across that entire time for these types of systems were trust, reliability, uh, stability, and making sure that it's providing a lot of value to that warfare officer and not sort of inundating them with too much information. So that was sort of the machine learning side. More recently, I guess since the 2013-2014 timeframe, that's when we, we as an organization started getting interested in deep learning with some of the really uh, early uh, performance enhancements that were shown from that. So that's where I kind of dove pretty deep into trying to apply deep learning to the spectrum. So when I say the spectrum, uh, going back to communications, it's a signal. Uh, so we basically turn uh, what we hear, say, over the air in the cell phone uh, signals into what's called a spectrogram and analyze that spectrogram and try and identify patterns for 
how they're behaving, how they're adapting, and kind of isolate different communication patterns. Uh, so that was pretty much my time at Lockheed Martin. Uh, about a year ago, actually for several years, I was kind of following the trends in machine learning and deep learning, and more recently, I guess what's called data science, uh, following podcasts like this, blogs, etc., and really got an interest in how some of this machine learning technology was being fielded or deployed in other industries. So I was working more in a prototype space. We did have to build actual products and test them, but it wasn't really sort of at that level, say, scaling out to hundreds of thousands of users or or um, surfacing it across a different unique uh, customer base. So I started getting more of an interest in how it was being used in different industries. And through a colleague, they connected me with Urban Outfitters, which recently stood up a data science and advanced analytics organization. And I've been there for about a year. Well, that strikes me as a, a pretty significant shift from a defense contractor to a, kind of a hip retailer. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I saw it as a, <laughs> as a natural transition to move from working with electronic warfare officers to, uh, you know, trying to sell uh, more dresses or uh, match, <laughs> match customers with the best dress that they believe that they should be wearing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does sound strange, but what's really funny is when I, when I kind of started with the job and kind of really understood the landscape, the underlying technologies that are being used for both are very similar when it comes down to the the approaches or the math or the deep learning models, machine learning models. It's just using it in a different way. And I kind of landed on that earlier on in my career when when my originally my focus was on strict sort of wireless system signal processing and moving into more machine learning uh, and researching some of the math behind there. There's when you kind of have to decode a message over the air coming from your phone that has an estimation that's going on in the background and the underlying math that's done there is very similar to what may be done in various machine learning domains. So there's a, sort of a lot of overlap when you get down to that level. Mm -hmm. And similarly for uh, analyzing some of the spectrograms or the spectrum in, at Lockheed Martin, um, you can look at that almost as an image and you're doing image processing on it, similar to how you would take a picture of a model and address and analyze the characteristics of that dress. So there's there's sort of very similar space, definitely a completely different domain, and they both sort of have uh, unique challenges. My background is electrical engineering as well. My uh, graduate work was on the networking side, so like stochastic modeling of microcells and things like that. So uh, I'm very, very curious about some of the work that you did in your past life and looking at applying deep learning to uh, the frequency domain and things like that. But we're not going to talk about that now. <laughs> right. Uh, we're going to talk about selling dresses. <laughs> uh, so you put together uh, a couple of part, a two part blog series on this project in which you were uh, using deep learning and in particular uh, computer vision and in, in particular custom vision APIs to do uh, what you called automated fashion product attribution. Yeah, so what's the business problem there? What is fashion, what is product attribution uh, and, and why is it important for urban outfitters? Yeah, sure. So in terms of product attribution, we'll start with like take a, 
and take a picture of a dress on any sort of e-commerce website. On that dress, there are certain attributes about that particular product. So for a dress, that may be characteristics such as the sleeve length. As, um, it could be the neckline. So is it a deep V? Is it a crew neck? Uh, the color, the pattern, the length of the dress, how far it kind of goes down the leg, the fabric composition, the list sort of goes on there. And that's those attributes sort of provide, provide a textual metadata or description about the essence of that product. Uh, traditionally, the descriptions may be fairly short based on uh, limitations of being able to code in those attributes if you're going to be doing thousands of them a week or thousands of them a month. So what we were interested in is are there ways we can sort of, one, automate the process of attributing our products the way we currently attribute them? And then two, are there ways that we can sort of augment the existing attribute set that our, our merchants, buyers, and web product team um, use today to kind of enhance the description of those products? Because the products themselves, uh, in terms of representation, you have the image itself, you have the attributes, you have the copy or the textual description, and the title. So all of those are sort of good indicators of what that particular product is and how it can be categorized. The attributes themselves are used in various different ways across the business, and this is probably common across a lot of uh, the e-commerce domain. So one way is it's used for navigation filters for the customer online when they're shopping. So how do you filter on, obviously, things like size and color, but also some of those other attributes I described earlier. So if somebody's shopping for... Uh, a cocktail party that may be different than how they shop for um, business attire, and it'd be uh, it's helpful to have attributes or coding that kind of tailors one to the other, so that you can filter your site to give them the best sort of online experience as possible. Another way is uh, search, so th you could treat those attributes sort of as keywords, and if you can identify some type of um, correlation or distance between those keywords, that's a good way of uh, enhancing the search beyond just uh, strict keyword lookup, if it can sort of identify those associations. Um, that's more on the front side for customer facing, but the business uses it, uses the attributes in other different ways on the back end. So think planning and forecasting. So how do we know as, as a company how many uh, floral prints midi dresses do we want to buy for next summer or how many even at the top level how many coats versus pants versus blouses uh need to be purchased season by season so that kind of goes into the planning and forecasting side of trying to identify and, and kind of cluster these different products based on some of these attributes and if uh things are either misattributed or uh insufficiently attributed, it can heavily sway the direction that some of those forecasts uh, or even retrospective analysis of, of prior performance goes. You know, what's the history of product attribution uh, at a place like Urban Outfitters? Are you, you know, just kind of relying on the data that comes from the manufacturers and you haven't done much with images previously? Or is there kind of historical work that's been done to try to do this? Sure. So uh, my understanding is it's sort of done in a couple different stages. The first is during what we're calling the, the, the buying process or even the planning process. 
so that's when a product is a uh, purchase order is put out for it. It has attributes, like you said, perhaps from the manufacturer. We sometimes get samples from that product that we can sort of uh, confirm those attributes before they get coded into the system on the front side of things. Then the order goes through and several weeks may go by. We get the product in-house. We decide to list that product onto the website. That's when the web team comes in and they may sort of enhance or update some of those core attributes to tailor to the current trends, current season, or the current creative elements that are on the website to showcase some of those products. So on the front end, it may be very simple, just uh, sort of colors, patterns, sizes, brands, etc. And then when it gets closer to customer-facing website side, that's when it may be enriched with some of those uh, examples I was telling you earlier, like black dresses that may be good for a cocktail event. Historically, that has been done very, uh, it is a manual process. And it's important that it, at least at some point in that chain, does get uh, reviewed by an actual person because they're, they're sort of sort of so important into describing that product itself. Long term, um, the goal is to sort of again automate some of that, but still have somebody always in the loop to confirm or if the system identifies errors to manually kind of override those errors. So. We've also investigated in different vendors that provide this capability as well and kind of experimented on and off. And to be honest, uh, Urban Outfitters as a whole does work with dozens of different vendors. So at various times, we may be trying out different uh, attributes, feature sets that come from different vendors and using it in different contexts. To date, though, the, the primary force is sort of manually driven by the merchants, the buyers, and the web product team. Okay. And so faced with this challenge of trying to interpret uh, visual images and pull out uh, these different attributes, there are lots of ways that you could tackle this problem with machine learning. Uh, what you did was turn to some of the cloud-based APIs that are available. Can you uh, talk a little bit about your motivation there and, and the various considerations? Sure. So we actually started with building experimental in-house models using uh, primarily like Keras uh, built on like TensorFlow, sometimes PyTorch, and kind of tweaking existing models uh, retraining them, fine-tuning them, or I think what's called essentially transfer learning, mm -hmm. to I reclassify those uh, those images based on whatever labels we have. So we did play around with that a little to start. That's, of course, coming in. That's the first thing that I was interested in doing. Very excited to get my hand on some of the data that we had in-house because we do have a large collection of uh, hundreds of thousands of products with some labels on them. So why nice not training just, data to play with. That was one nice thing moving over to uh, this industry and Urban Outfitters from uh, from Lockheed Martin is uh, at Lockheed Martin in the research lab. Since we kind of were um, working on essentially prototypes and the, on more of the advanced side, we usually were trying to generate our data, or it was also very expensive to acquire data, particularly setting up receivers and things to collect some of those signals. So being able to kind of walk in on day one and have uh, the ability to tap into some of the rich product imagery and descriptions was was very nice. At the same time, that was also uh, a unique engineering 
exercise for me, like having to go through that level amount of data and sort of in an efficient manner to to kind of get it into a point where it can train. That's as with many machine learning or deep learning applications, like 90% of the work. And that's where some of the uh, some of this kind of came in. We we started seeing some of these uh, machine learn auto ML type of solutions come into market. We actually worked with Google on their alpha release of their auto ML, so that was our first entrance into it. Uh, since we they're sort of we uh, interact with them pretty often. And from my perspective, or I, sh- I should say our data science team's perspective. Our team is fairly small. It's only a couple people right now in the core data science group and maybe a dozen total across data science, advanced analytics in in the organization we work. So we have a lot of projects that we're interested in doing. And really, it comes down to what's the most effective use of our time. And I was sort of attracted to at least trying out some of these AutoML solutions to see how far can can we get with sort of this automated solution and is it good enough to use in production and satisfy the majority of our needs? It may not be 100% perfect. It may not beat the state of the art, but does it move the needle enough to uh, warrant sort of going to a managed service versus building it in-house? And that allows to focus on efforts that say use those attributes rather than having to generate those attributes, if that makes sense. When you uh, were experimenting with the building this in-house with, with Keras and TensorFlow and the like, did you get far enough that as you started to explore the, uh, the hosted services, uh, you had a, something to compare to? Or did you run into, um, were you able to build in-house models to perform the tasks that you were trying to perform? Yeah, I'd say we actually started building the in-house models. In it, The initiative kind of started in parallel with trying some of the managed services as well as in-house models. And in terms of like what a model like this looks like, the input would be the image, and which in this case, the image for Urban Outfitters, uh, if you go on our, one of our websites, is a model wearing the product, sometimes with a, a clear-colored background, sometimes with a very rich... Uh, uh, atmospheric background. So some of our photography we shoot on site with, uh, you know, uh, say, photos of some of the models wearing the products in a city or urban environment or in a desert environment. So there's some some of that scenery is in there in the background as well. So we were just trying feeding the image in raw into one of these models, and then the output would be to start a single attribute for that model, and that would be say. Uh, sleeve length, and that sleeve length would have various values that you're trying to predict. Is it sleeveless? Is it short-sleeved? Is it three-quarters? Is it long-sleeved? From from there, we kind of built out a bank of those models. So one that would, say, do sleeve length, one that does neckline, one that does the dress length, one that does dress color, etc. And what we realized is when we're building out those models, both sort of in-house and with some of these services, is that it really that some attributes are really easy to identify, like sleeve length maybe one. Others are far more subtle, like the occasion of of a dress. Like and by occasion we mean under what occasions would you want to wear a dress like this? We've also tried different types of products, so like tops and bottoms and doing the same thing with those attributes. So the challenge I'd say the challenge across the two was sort of 
the same in that some attributes were far more challenging to discern the individual values between the others. And another challenge we ran into with these images is the complexity of the images require um, sometimes a level of segmentation in order to get the best results. So if we had just photo flats, meaning it's just the product laid on a, a flat white background, then that takes out any background, it takes out any model, and it takes out any distortions of the product based on the model's pose. But most of the time, actually all the time, we have these more creative images, which are great for providing context to the customer and how they can sort of wear this and under what uh, what occasions. And the but the challenge from the data science side is how do you, if we're interested in just the essence of the product itself, it's hard to isolate uh, the characteristics of the product from the background. So that's one thing that we realized really early on, on in both the in-house models and uh, these managed services is the importance of isolating the product. And the same goes with uh, if, if you have multiple products in a single photo. So if somebody's wearing a blouse, uh, jeans, a hat, and some shoes, then the other products, if you don't sort of isolate it, can sort of mix in and bias the models that you're creating. That was probably the, the biggest ones that we ran into. Uh, so you started working with these custom vision services. Uh, maybe walk us through kind of your uh, methodology for trying out these various services. How did you even like you didn't did you did you use all of the ones that were available at the time or did you create a, a short list? How did you even choose which ones to look at? Yeah, we um, so, so we isolated down. We wanted to narrow it down to about five or six to keep the scope reasonable. And from there, we just chose the the ones that sort of showed up the most uh, and started with some of the heavy hitters. So think like Google, IBM. In our, in, so to, to summarize the list that we tried, there was Google AutoML um, that's currently in beta. There's Salesforce Einstein Vision, which is driven by the uh, Salesforce. IBM Watson uh, had a vision solution. There was a company called Clarify which is a smaller business, but they um, were started by a fairly prominent figure in deep learning and have been growing since 2013-ish, I, I, I want to say. Yep, that's Matt and, Zeeler, who's been interviewed on the show before. Yes, uh, and then there was also Microsoft Azure has their custom vision model. So we kind of stuck with the bigger ones that we found, and then since Clarify had some incumbency and uh, experience in there, we added that as well. Uh, more recently, after the uh, conference presentation that I gave at Rework Deep Learning London in September, um, I we, we signed up for the Fast AI version three course, and that started in October November timeframe. And we were just curious how well would these models work, just applying lesson one, lesson two of Fast AI, and how they would sort of compare nice. to to some of those. So that's that one came in just because that. That had a lot of momentum. They kind of had some close to out of box capabilities, but those uh, we were looking for ones that seemed fairly prominent, had various capabilities such as um, batch uploads, being able to uh, automatically serve a model afterwards in some scalable manner if we wanted to run this in production. Um, something that had reasonable APIs or interfaces so that we can query it essentially as a service and some level of support. So there's certainly a lot of lot of different people, a lot of players in this game. 
but those are the just sort of the ones that we landed that we thought were re- representative of the current landscape. As you explored these different services, you know, to what degree did you find that the the service itself is commoditized, meaning there's not a lot of difference in performance, there's not a lot of difference in features, uh, or uh, are there, you know, fairly significant differences from one to the next? Um, again, performance features, usability, I think, is something you looked at as well. Yeah, we we broke it up into two high level uh, dimensions. One was performance, which includes your standard metrics like classification accuracy, AUC, and then usability, which includes all of the other factors that one may consider when using this, not from an academic perspective, but more from a business perspective. So that includes things like cost, uh, the overall user interface in interacting with it, how easy is it to upload data, how easy is it to serve data, is it quick to serve or perform inference, how long does it take to train the models, how long does it take to tweak the models? And we try to look at it both from a data scientist perspective as well as from a anybody who is not necessarily an ML machine learning practitioner. So think like a, a traditional software developer or an analyst. And the reason we did that is because that's really where the target audience is for these, these at least automated uh, machine learning products. The, the largest base are those people that have data they're able to acquire labels. They're interested in building these models, but they don't necessarily want to uh, take several different courses in machine learning and identify how to how to build one out. So on that front, we did have um, sort of an analyst slash intern kind of using these tools from that perspective, and then other uh, more experienced data scientists used the tool too and kind of collected our thoughts on some of the challenges we identified. We also tried to diversify the data sets that we're operating on. So we had one data set that we generated that was, we're calling it the Urban Outfitters address data set, which is just a collection of about 15 or 5,500 dresses and labeled very simply with just what's the dress pattern in terms of floral, solid, striped, or not a dress, where not a dress is something indicating it's very obviously not a dress like shoes. The goal there was just to have something that was kind of constrained and isolated, not necessarily the actual data we'd want to use in real-time operations, but something that was controlled so that we can compare all the services uh, against each other. So that was the one we had in-house, but we also used three public uh, benchmark data sets. So we used uh, CIFAR 10, MNIST, and Fashion MNIST. So CIFAR 10, um, I think they're 32 by 32 uh, objects or images of different objects. MNIST is the digits data set, and Fashion MNIST is sort of the equivalent of MNIST, but using uh, very simple-looking fashion apparel like shirts, pants, dresses, etc. So that way, we sort of had a mix of different types of images going into this, and we weren't sort of biasing towards the one dress data set that we had in-house. Did you get interesting information by doing CIFAR and MNIST, uh, you know, one of the challenges I think in this industry is, you know, we talk about kind of being over uh, overfitted on data sets like MNIST and CIFAR. I'd expect all of these services to do pretty well uh, on these. Did you Was that the case or no? Yeah, if I recall, they all did pretty well. None of them quite got to the point of the true uh, best scoring 
public benchmark. Okay. And that's mainly because these algorithms on, that the services are using usually fall into, one, from what I've seen, one or uh, one of two categories. The first one is transfer learning. So that's where you take an already trained model, um, very deep trained model, cut off the head of it, have your own uh, labels on the end and just retrain that sort of final layer or possibly tweak some of the layers in between. And then the other one, so that's the majority of them. Google Cloud, I think, was the one that stood out as different in that they used something called an architecture search or neural architecture search using something called NASNet that they published uh, shortly before releasing AutoML. Mm -hmm. So in that case, it's trying to find different configurations of the underlying neural network architecture that fit that uh, data best. So in all those cases, and the same with the in-house models, we were basically doing a in-house transfer learning on ResNet models. So in all those, you're sort of already fit to, or you're not training necessarily from scratch and training four hours with a really deep model. So you're not going to hit those uh, best performing numbers that you see in terms of uh, the benchmarks out there, but they all get reasonably well. So if I recall, there may be fractions of a percent or a few percent off in some of those data sets, and they all sort of performed very similarly. In fact, some of them, if I recall, may have even performed we, we, we found they performed slightly better than we expected, and it's mainly because the, that data set is, like you said, either A, already incorporated into some of those models that's already learned, or B, uh, essentially too small or too simple to be able to take a very large uh, technique like neural architecture search and find the best solution for. Mm -hmm. So, But across the board, for, for all those, and even our internal dresses mod, uh, data set, Performance as a whole was not a differentiator among any of the services that we found because most of them fell essentially within what one may deem the standard error for that data set. So like plus or minus a fraction or a couple percent. So if you're trying to eke out the absolute best performance for your use case, that may be very important. For, for our applications in sort of e-commerce or kind of enhancing these attributes for uh, our internal teams, a fraction of a percent is not going to make a huge difference. So it really came to that usability side that was more important for us. So that was one interesting finding is that there wasn't really any one major leader in terms of absolute performance. So it, it comes to all those other factors. This past summer, I had an intern. It was my daughter, actually. And she did a similar project um, working on or working with the speech to text API. So we had a bunch of podcasts, we had a bunch of transcripts, and the idea was, could we build an automated pipeline to kind of transcribe our podcasts and, you know, using some of these similar kinds of APIs and ultimately, you know, maybe do some interesting things to help it perform better on kind of domain-specific words. Uh, and so the, this project started out with her looking at a bunch of uh, APIs. And one of the things that we found pretty early on, like the, the initial plan was, hey, we've got these APIs, we can throw a bunch of, uh, you know, podcasts or, or audio samples at them, and just kind of see how they do. But we found that each of the models had a, a bunch of like kind of, you know, they have kind of knobs, configuration parameters like, uh, you know, Google supported three different models, telephone, video, and default. 
Um, they had different uh, sample rates and things like that. All of these things are specific to audio. And the, the result of all that was that you know, we certainly could not kind of compare these you know, very easily using their default settings. But even when we tweaked the individual settings of a different model, we never really had a, a strong sense that we were able to compare apples to apples uh, because, you know, we were kind of custom fitting uh, parameters for each of these runs. It, is there a similar dynamic on the vision side? And if so, how did you address that? Yeah, so I think for on the vision side, the training and the uh, sort of building the model itself is uh, completely automated. So there's not much you can really do in terms of how to uh, uh, tweak knobs there. Uh, you can sort of iteratively update the model by uh, providing new... Uh, new images or relabeling images as you go. But we did see that there were sort of knobs in terms of how you interact with uh, the model after it's been trained. So not quite a knob, but a feature. One of the services offers uh, human labeling for mislabeled or unlabeled images so that you can very rapidly kind of update your data set without having to do it from scratch. Um, I think that one was Google. Uh, Clarify stands out as the one that was most quickly able to kind of through the interface, click on a, uh, an image, relabel that image if it happened to be a false uh, positive, false negative, and click retrain and get a response in a matter of like seconds. So that in that case, that's a sort of knob that's useful if you're rapidly interacting with it and you have a really messy data set that you're trying to use the service not just to build models, but sort of to iterate uh, you working with the model to iterate on that data set to kind of refine both the model as well as the quality of your the labels in your data. So we found more less on knobs in terms of the performance because it was a fully managed uh, machine learning salute like machine learning as a service, mm -hmm. uh, but more on the usability side. And that last point that you were mentioning is that this feature that you were describing is this a, a feature where you're able to identify mislabeled uh, or misclassified images in a given run and kind of automatically tag those to get put into your training set for future runs? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the one there. Okay, cool. Uh, you know, in part of your analysis, you talked about this challenge that you ran into around data poisoning. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, yes. So this goes to sort of the things that one should be careful with when using these types of services. The, you don't want to look at these services as just a, a turnkey solution where you just give it the data, it's going to give you the perfect model and you don't really have to do much after that, particularly if you're sort of a manager that needs to plan time in deploying these type of products and uh, allocating resources to it. So one, one interesting one we came into was uh, if you... What we have is for each product, there could be several different photos for it. So there could be a front-facing photo of a dress, a rear-facing side, different angles, uh, zoomed-in photos of the product. And the one example I think uh, really resonated was a photo of a model wearing a dress. And we, had, or, sorry, it was a dress with roughly four or five photos of that model wearing it with different angles and zooms. And then each one of those photos you could potentially treat as an independent sample. Uh, so each one of them, 
is marked as a, in this case, we, I think we're classifying dress length. So is either a mini dress, midi dress, or maxi dress, which is uh, the, the different lengths. And if each one of those five images are treated independently, then if you use an arbitrary train validation test data split routine, then it's possible that that same exact product can end up both in your training, validation, and test sets. And what that means is when you go to predict on, say, one of those test uh, data, an image of that exact product was in training, and then it happened to get spilled into test because of the way you split it, you could have trained to identify that that was a MIDI dress and then pass in a photo of that dress into the training side that is, say, a zoomed-in picture of that dress of, say, just the top side that's really accentuating, say, the neckline and maybe the sleeves. So you may not even see the bottom of that dress in that test photo, but the model will very accurately predict that it is a MIDI bottom length dress, which is not even in the photo. And the reason for that is because the model saw photos of that exact image under different angles in the training set. Right. So in that last statement, you said you'd pass in this view of the image into the, the training side. I think you meant the inference side. And so you're, you're giving, you're passing your, uh, your trained model cropped picture of the dress from which it could not reasonably predict the length of the dress and finding that it performs well, suggesting that it's picking up on, it memorized basically that this dress is a midi dress. Yeah, and it may be for many other factors other than actually looking at features that indicate the length of the dress. Mm -hmm. So in that particular image, it had a nice uh, clear blue background. Um, the the pattern of that uh, dress was like a floral purple kind of themed dress that may have been unique to that dress out of the entire data set. So it may have just memorized that it, you know that purple floral pattern is associated with an arbitrary label of MIDI length dress that we gave it. Mm -hmm. uh, so one has to take care of that sort of if you're, if you just take, if I were to, if we were to just walk in and take uh, 50,000 photos with, with the labels on them and just allow it to do a random split, then they're going to kind of go all over the place. You need to kind of make sure that you cluster your products so that um, you're only feeding in products to training and independent products to validation or test. So that's just kind of one example we ran into. Um, there's there's some other subtle ones that uh, kind of go back to the point of uh, segmentation. So there was one interesting example where the model was wearing a, I think it was a red and black striped dress, and it kept ringing up as solid. And this was across both our in-house models and the managed service models. And we're like, why does this keep showing up as solid? It is clearly a striped dress. looks a lot like the other striped dress that we stuck in there. So then we started poking around at it by sort of arbitrarily cropping the image in different areas um, and feeding in the cropped images to both uh, the, the cloud services as well as our own classifier. And we realized that as we move the cropped image more and closer and closer to the hat that the model was wearing, which was a black solid hat, the, the more it was ringing up as solids, and then the more that we cropped that hat out and just focused just on a dress, it was uh, stripes. 
So that's a case where, for whatever reason, it was tying that particular black solid hat, and that was the resin, the primary feature it was using to classify a pattern instead of the dress itself. So it can be a little tricky to kind of like tame these models based on your input data. You have to be, kind of be careful with that input data. And that goes back to what I was mentioning earlier, where you can't just treat it as a turnkey solution because that means in order to do that, you need to have a very clean data set. And in order to have a very, well, in practice, I, at least I have never run into a perfectly clean data set uh, in, outside of academia. And even then, they can be dirty sometimes. So that's sort of a cautionary tale to like, really kind of inspect the outputs of these models. And that's actually where a lot of the effort that these managed services went into is the user interface after the model's built. How do you surface all of the false positives, false negatives? How do you categorize and cluster the different um, attributes that you're using your model to train on? And that way a user can, without machine learning experience, inspect and say, hey, something's fishy there. So those are all great examples of things that people need to watch out for when they're working on with these products from a, a data perspective? Were there other categories of kind of gotchas uh, or did it all kind of boil down to data management, data quality? Um, I think it it often boils down to the source which is of, of the data itself. There were sort of like, there was an issue of sort of, uh, not necessarily an issue, but one thing to keep in mind is when when do you think you're sort of getting to diminishing returns when tweaking and modifying these models? So if you hit sort of 92%, there's no real way of knowing whether or not you can get up to 98% without uh, constantly tweaking and tweaking the model. And the same goes with sort of academic data sets. And these services allow you to, as I mentioned earlier, kind of relabel mislabeled images, hit retrain, and see the results again. But depending on the pricing structure, that can all come at a cost, whether it be a retraining cost or adding in additional images. So it's kind of tough to, as you're using these, and the same goes when you're kind of building these models offline or uh, in-house in isolation. How do you know when to add more data to improve the model? How do you know when you need to improve? improve the quality of the data and then how do you know when it just sort of you hit you hit the best you could do in a reasonable amount of time is is one that was a, a little tricky it's still data related but it's more on the modeling side so you've got in the blog post a couple of really interesting tables comparing the both usability and performance of the different services and uh, we'll link to the the two blog posts in the show notes, folks can go there to look at the detail. Uh, but the performance comparison table struck me as really interesting. In particular, the homegrown solution based on the, the fast AI library performed very well, uh, state of the art, or at least um, let's say exhibited the best performance of all of the things that you compared on the public data sets, but not on the uh, not on your own uh, Urban Outfitter dresses data set. That is where Google outperformed the uh, the other solutions. And, and now, to be fair, the the difference between Fast AI on your kind of full data set um, and uh, Google was very small. Uh, but I'm wondering if you have any. 
uh, kind of intuition as to what's happening here? Yeah, unfortunately, that one's it's kind of tough to tease out exactly why uh, Google kind of eked out in performance over uh, fast AI. Because like, like you said, it was, uh, if I recall, like a less than a percent or a fraction of a percent. And for that data set, if I recall, there was in the test set 500 or so samples. So that could be just a few different images that happened to do slightly better in Google versus uh, versus fast AI. So factoring in the sample size of the test set, to me, that's almost sort of in the noise, the difference between those, even though I think I probably highlighted them explicitly in, in that blog post there. Mm-hmm. So I kind of look at that as not necessarily that Google is performing better than fast AI or that the other services are completely behind, but just it's at the, from an from a operational standpoint, it's sort of in the noise. Like they all performed very similarly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so what was the, what was kind of the, the, the key takeaway here in terms of, you know, when you need to a tool to solve these kinds of problems for the business, where are you going to look? So we haven't actually decided to use any of the managed services. It was more of a uh, experiment to to kind of see what was out there. Uh, currently, our team is still kind of focused on using, say, Jupyter Notebooks. We have been dabbling with the Fast AI solution as well. Um, it's that's that was using like the lesson one, so it was very quick to get started with it, and it also that library provides some visualization capability that's a little easier than say just manually rolling. Uh, images through like Matplotlib, but what we found, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily say we're forever staying away from these particular services. We may not even use them necessarily for a fully deployed model, but even just using it as a quick uh, hand wavy benchmark of uploading some data, seeing how well these things, like if you have a fresh data set and you just want to see how it runs running it through one of these services, getting an interface so you can at least visualize some of the performance and do it all roughly, uh, if you have your data set up reasonably well, roughly less than an hour. I mean, the training takes often less than five minutes, uh, surfaces you results pretty quickly. It's, it's a nice way of very quickly getting a feel for what's in the realm of possible for these models, even for somebody who is an ML practitioner. So it kind of gives a nice sense of comfort that, yes, this is a tractable problem. Uh, you could get 80 plus percent in performance and whether or not you kind of stick with that service to use it for deployments and productionalize it, or you just kind of use that as insight that your homegrown models may perform well. I found it much easier to kind of get up and running with that than wrangling the data in a, a custom in-house solution. Well, we've talked about the fast AI library uh, a few times, and I will add in uh, a mention, a plug, you know, just as you found, um, you can do a lot going through uh, the first couple of lessons of that fast AI course using their library. And it is a fan favorite of folks in the Twimmel community. We've got a, a community that Folks can find at twimmelai.com slash meetup, the Twimmel online meetup. And we've brought three cohorts of folks through the fast AI course. The, the videos of our study groups are available on YouTube. Uh, and we're about to start 
uh, at least at the time of the recording of this uh, group going through the part two course. I imagine with enough demand, we'll bring another group through the part one course again. Uh, but for anyone who's listening to this and wants to learn how to build their own state-of-the-art vision models, the Fast AI course is a great place to start, and the Twimmel Online Meetup is a great place to get support in doing that. Uh, with that said, Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to share your work on this. Super interesting, uh, and I appreciate you um, coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.